recently arrived to the island, Gulliver has been firmly but politely taken to court. He delights in hearing of an immortal race unique to this part of the world. He imagines how much could be achieved in eternal life, dreaming of endless knowledge and power, wealth, success. The local, glancing at him with what might be pity, adds that while Solbergs never die, their minds and bodies continue to grow old. They are despised and hated by all sorts of people, he admits. Encountering a few Solbergs, Gulliver describes the most mortifying sight I ever beheld. Besides the usual deformities in extreme old age, they acquired an additional ghastliness in proportion to the number of years, which is not to be described. Lognag Island is one of the imaginary countries visited by Lemuel Gulliver in Jonathan Swift's satirical novel, Gulliver's Travels. Today, this 18th century story still speaks to eternal human concerns. Because humans have long been obsessed with longer life. Greek and Roman myth longed for it, with immortal gods and their half-mortal children. 17th century doctors believed lamb's blood transfusions would grant it. The Nazis conducted abhorrent human experiments to find it. And even today we hear unsettling rumors of Silicon Valley executives using strange elixirs to achieve it. From the vampires, werewolves, and witches rampant in pop culture, not to mention the growing investment in health and plastic surgery, it would seem our obsession with longer life is very much alive. I'm Rosario Lebrija Rasbetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Pikta Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Over the past century, public health improvements and medical developments have significantly increased the length of human life, almost doubling life expectancy for the average person. But rather than celebrate this extraordinary achievement, Many worry whether an aging society will bankrupt countries, destroy pensions, increase health costs, and lead inevitably to a weaker economy. But are they right? To imagine possible futures where longer lifespans don't undermine human life and well-being, today we're joined by Linda Grattan, Professor of Management Practice at the London Business School and Fellow of the World Economic Forum, and Andrew Scott, Professor of Economics at London Business School and Fellow of All Souls College, Oxford University, who previously taught at Harvard and London School of Economics. Together, Linda and Andrew are authors of the book The New Long Life, A Framework for Flourishing in a Changing World. We also welcome our very own Alice de Lamas, Senior Investment Manager at Big Asset Management, who focuses on human strategy. Derek Batter, head of marketing at Big Asset Management and equity partner of the Big Tech Group, moderates this discussion. Are longer lifespans a good thing or a bad thing? Well, let's imagine that we gave you a gift. And the gift we gave you was a gift of 10 years. How would that feel? Well, my guess, if you were 30 years old, and we said, here's another 10 years. You would feel amazing about it. So many things you wanted to do. But what happened if you were 70 years old and we gave you the gift 
of another 10 years. You'd probably have to do what I did. I'm 66 when I, which was to really start saying, I need to be very healthy. So really for me, Derek, it is a gift. It's a gift that I've taken and certainly the book that Andrew Scott and I wrote together, the two books we've written together have changed my life. And the way it's changed my life is I focused a great deal more on health, but I've also realized that it is a gift. And whatever age we are, we have got to take that gift and make the most of it. But as Andrew and I described in our books, that really means fundamentally changing the way that we live, the way we think about our asset class, and indeed the way that we think about our friends and relationships. So it's a gift, but it's a thoughtful gift. Thank you, Linda. Andrew, do you share the view of Linda? Uh, yeah, I mean, I got into this topic because as an economist, I would give talks about an aging society, and you've probably heard these, but they're always negative. There's too many old people, old people are a problem. Then you look at the statistic and find out that on average, we're living longer and we're healthier for longer, which sounds like good news. And I guess another way of saying it is that if I said to you, I'm going to take 10 years away from your life, I think you'd probably get upset about it. So it's a bit sort of strange to say, I don't want more. But of course, the key, and you know, Linda was hinting at it, is that if we're living these long lives, we have to structure them differently. And in particular, I mean, we all want to live not just long, but a good long life. So health, purpose, engagement. And, you know, that's the big human challenge we've got. But as I say, yes, I think it is if we can make the most of this. And of course, all previous gains to life expectancy we've had, children, middle age, we found ways to exploit and make it good. And that, of course, is our next human imperative to seize this opportunity of these longer lives. What about you, Alice? What is your perspective on longer, long lives? I tend to agree with Andrew. In my view, it's as good as you make it for yourself with the support of your loved ones, happy relationships, and where you constantly reinvent yourself and strive towards new objectives. So I believe the more happiness and the more optimism you have over the course of your life, the better your life is, and even in a longer lifespan perspective. And there, there can be a degradation of life that can occur with aging, but it can be mitigated, like Linda said, if you have healthier lifestyle, adequate support services, and also connections with others. So to me, it's really about as good as you make it for yourself, that you can have a good longer life. Thank you. Maybe, Andrew, can you put things a bit in perspective in terms of math? You know, what is today the longevity, the probability uh, that a child born today will live to 100 years? Please give us a bit of stats. Well, I'm going to have to start by just saying it depends, of course, because we've got to project future gains. So, you know, the country with the highest life expectancy at birth at the moment is Japan, where, uh, you know, a female born today has life expectancy of 87 assuming they live their life entirely in today's technology. But of course, what we've seen is life expectancy grow. And roughly speaking, you know, something called best practice life expectancy has been growing two or three years every decade. So every generation is living six to nine years longer. Now, if you extrapolate that trend, then you know, roughly about half of kids born today will live to be 100. But if you sort of lower that trend and say, well, it's going to be harder to keep growing at two to three years, say, it's going to grow at one, one and a half year every decade, then the UK government under those conservative assumptions, there's one in five girls will live to be 100 and 50% of children born today will live to be into their 90s. And that's the change. You know, it's the first time ever in human history 
a child born today can expect to live into old age. We've had old people before, you know, throughout history, we've had lots of old people because once you survive those early years, you had a good chance of reaching 50, 60, even 70 and 80. But now it's everyone has to plan for that. And that's the really fundamental change. So conservatively 90s, but certainly 100 years is uh, something that there's a prospect of. It looks like with more longevity, we need to consider our careers in a much different way. We do. We need to consider everything in a different way. So here's the, the good news. You've got more time and that's going to give you more leisure. Here's the bad news. You're going to have to work for longer. Then the question is, then how do you shape? You know, in the 20th century, we created teenagers and pensioners and a three stage life of education, work, retirement. What you're seeing at the moment is governments around the world saying, oh, gosh, we've got this pension crisis. Let's just raise the retirement age. Financial problems solved, hopefully. You know, young Danes today know they're going to work to 72, 73, according to the government. Trouble is that just raising the retirement age is neither sufficient nor optimal. It's not sufficient because most people leave the labour market after 50 already. So you've got to try and fight ageism. You've got to upgrade your skills, find a sense of purpose and meaning. So just raising retirement age doesn't solve. It's also not optimal because, you know, if you're living to 100, we calculate in the book, you're probably working to your 80. You've got a 60 year career. And I don't know about you, but doing the work in the way that we all do now for 60 years and whatever job you're doing doesn't sound great. And so we're going to have to restructure life. So we talk about a multi-stage life where your career is split up into different stages with different motivations, sometimes working hard, sometimes working flexibly, perhaps with a break in between. But so as I say, it's about unwinding work and leisure, moving away from this very block approach of education, work, retirement, to something much more intermingled and much more multi-staged. That's a pretty big change, of course. But then again, we're talking about a pretty big change to life expectancy. Linda, anything you want to add on this? Well, I do, actually. Thank you, Derek. I'm a work psychologist. I study work. And to be honest, I've written quite a few books before I wrote with Andrew, The Hundred Year Life, about how I thought that work would change. But I didn't really see very much change taking place. The pandemic has had the most extraordinary impact on work. Now, I know Derek and Alice that you and Pictay will be in the office working the very long hours that you do and always will do. But actually, you're rather unusual. I think we're going to see a significant change in the way that we work. And that's going to bring much more flexibility. I can see already, I've written just recently about how some investment companies, I'll give you the name later, have said to people, you can work anywhere you want for three months a year. Or others that are saying, other companies are saying, you know, we want to fundamentally change who comes into the office and so on. Now, for me, that's really good news because one of the things that Andrew and I said when we wrote The Hundred Year Life and The New Long Life is that we needed to change to a multi-stage uh, life, i.e. you come in and out of work, you start your own business, you take time off, whatever it is. And actually, I didn't see very much activity around that, institutional activity uh, or, or indeed individual activity. We saw social pioneers who were doing that, but the majority didn't. But I think that that's changing. Can you tell us, Alice, you know, how industries have changed already, you know, to, to take into account these longer lifespans and, and what you've seen changing uh, to cope with this different approach? 
I think that there are many, many, many industries that are changing. Um, the first one related to longer lifespans uh, would be the medical research and technology that is changing to adapt to longer life, but also services in healthcare uh, that is important, as um, Linda mentioned about Alzheimer's. Pension services are also evolving, services to upskill, reskill people to learn new things whilst at work because you have a multi-stage working life and working career. And so through education technology, and that's been you know, uh, boosted by COVID, you can reinvent yourself with new career development, new jobs. You also have, the, um, you know, for longer lifespans, you also have the tech engineer nutrition with a health focus and also technologies that enable better yielding of resources and not just the nutritional resources, but all the resources that are scarce in nature as people live longer. So there's the trend of decarbonization of the planet, recycling, upcycling, waste management. And all these industries are evolving rapidly because people are living longer, in my view. The Tale of Faust is one of the most epic explorations of immortality to this day. The lifelong work of German author Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. This tragic play tells the story of a scholar who has all the knowledge in the world, but who remains deeply unfulfilled. Wishing to die, he is visited by a devil called Mephistopheles, who offers him good looks and boundless energy. He takes the bargain and with these new abilities goes through stages of extensive learning, hedonism, politics and love. In the end, he evades the devil and is received into heaven. There have been many interpretations of this German legend. In Dr. Faustus, an early incarnation of the story by English Renaissance playwright Christopher Marlowe, the story does not end well for its hero and he's damned eternally to the confines of hell. Marlowe ends the play with an ominous final chorus. Cut is the branch that might have grown full straight, and burned is Apollo's Lara bow, that sometimes grew within this learned man. Faustus is gone, regard his hellish fall, whose fiendful fortune makes dort the wise, only to wonder at unlawful things, whose deepness doth entice such forward wits, to practice more than heavenly power permits. Andrew, you're an economist. So, you know, what, what are the inventions that have uh, propelled the length and the quality of human life? You know, if you look back, what has triggered this longer life change? Well, I, you know, there, there's many and there's kind of three stages to the life expectancy gains. The first was just reducing infant mortality in high income countries, which was a great deal to do with nutrition uh, of expectant mothers, but also just public health and sanitation. I mean, much as we marvel about the fantastic medical interventions that have happened, many of the things that have really pushed uh, life expectancy have been sort of, you know, basic things like washable textiles, uh, cheap availability of soap and clean water. But of course, vaccinations as well. And, you know, great time to talk about vaccinations as we see just uh, uh, the, the safety they bring in the midst of a pandemic. So big improvements there. Then you had sort of improvements in middle age mortality. And there, there's been fantastic understandings of the heart and how it works. Progress in tackling many cancers, uh, you know, there's still a long way to go, but there's definitely been progress. 
But also we've seen people smoke less. We've seen people drink less. We've seen road safety become uh, uh, easier. So, you know, we see that big shift. So now, of course, where we stand is that given the majority of people live into old age, given that the most important thing is health, which, of course, has become incredibly clear to us in the midst of COVID as individually we've stayed away from work and shopping to keep, keep safe, as governments have introduced policies that have created GDP to save life. We're living into old age. Health's the most important thing. Where are all the diseases coming from now? Age-related diseases. So, you know, we talked about Alzheimer's, which is such a cruel disease, uh, but it's not just Alzheimer's, uh, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular, pulmonary, all of these have a really strong age component. And that, I think, is what's kind of really interesting with this shift towards um, preventative health, because if we can try and improve how we age, we don't just tackle one disease, we tackle many. And that has a number of interesting benefits. The first is, of course, if we age better, we aggregate across lots of diseases, so the gains are big. But the other thing is, if you can sort of uh, age better and you reduce one disease, then there's other diseases that will get you. But if you can reduce the incidence of all diseases, there's a complementarity. So I wrote a paper recently with David Sinclair, who's a Harvard geneticist on this, putting a value on these health gains and the multi-trillion dollars of health gains here. The most important thing now in living longer lives is to age well. And that's not about what you do when you're old, it's what you do throughout life. Linda, do you feel that we can keep the quality of life that we, we wish we would have in a longer life? Well, I think, Derek, it really depends what we mean by quality. I, I had a very sort of fascinating couple of years before COVID because I sat on uh, Prime Minister Abe's council in Japan on the 100-year life. And so I got a, an opportunity, really, to sit with the government to see what do they mean by, you know, healthy aging? And as Andrew said, you know, Japan is the longest living um, society in the world right now. And if you look at those areas of Japan where people live longest, they have a number of things in common. And I think we know this, you know, it's well understood now. One is the way that they eat and, you know, they eat less processed food, they eat more fish and so on. The second is that they are physically active, so they walk around each day. But really the most important thing, certainly in Japan, is the community bonds. So when they looked at particular cities, as well, you know, places in Japan where people were living long, what they found is that they were spending a lot of time together, you know, in their neighborhood. They were having coffee together every day. And Derek, just coming back to post-pandemic work, and the reason I'm saying this now to everybody is, you know, we are currently unfrozen in our organizations. We're just trying to decide what the refreeze will be like. It's very important that we don't go back to where we are because, you know, if you are in Japan and you do a four hour commute every day, which many people do, you don't have any time to spend time with your neighbors. You don't know who your community is. And so, you know, when you're 60 or 65, it's too late to start building neighborhood ties. So I think that as we think about the redesign of work, we need to say to ourselves, people need time to build stronger links into their communities. Alice, your world is changing. So, so tell us how you see how work and leisure, you know, is being also impacted by all those changes. 
Yeah, it's a very good point that Linda makes because it's true that, you know, we will see that we will have longer careers, uh, the retirement age will have to be raised, but we also have to recognize that those older people in the workforce cannot work the same amount of hours as the younger, and also that they need to enjoy what they do to be happy in their life. Because work helps well-being, but it's not just the only thing that helps well-being. You have also some good uh, positive leisure time that helps well-being. And therefore, we need to see a change in the way we work, where we invest in intangible assets such as knowledge, such as skills, such as fitness, which will make us better individuals. And I also believe that there is some institutional adaptation that needs to be done where corporates and people accept to work for a greater number of years and there's gradual retirement schemes, policy reforms related to health, related to long-term care, related to the financing of it, innovation of new technology, increased human capital investments because that's key throughout the life cycle and that's very important to have a sustainable life in the long run. There's also the volunteering aspect is that it's not just about work, uh, but it's also about caring for others that uh, Linda mentioned and caring for others helps uh, individual well-being. And so these options should also be considered in a rewarding manner for people who work in a longer lifespan. Can I just jump in there, Alice, on volunteering? Yeah. because. Uh, we know that people who volunteer have more positive attitudes to their life. They're sort of happier people. But let me give you two problems about volunteering. Number one, volunteering numbers have gone right down, really plummeted. Why? Well, because people are working all the time. So rather than, you know, if you ask how many hours a day you've got, you either put them into paid work or you put them into unpaid work. You, it's very difficult to do both. And secondly, Volunteering is a habit, and it's a habit that's actually built when people are young. It's not, I know we think, well, I'll wait until I'm 70 before I start volunteering. Actually, you're much more likely to volunteer at 70 if you volunteered at 30. And that's why, Alice, you're so right when you talk about the whole of the life cycle. These are not adaptations that you suddenly think of at the age of 60 or 70. Now is the time to start volunteering, to build those habits, to build those muscles, as it were, that will allow you to have a great life. Please don't leave it until you're 70 to do great things like volunteering. They make such a difference. I I agree with Linda. It's it's a great thing to do. And there'll be different stages of life where voluntary work is easier than others uh, when you a time constraint. But I do also think one of the great advantages of a longer life is you've got longer to develop as an adult. And that's not just about being 20 or 30. I'm 56 and I'm still hoping I've got time ahead of me to mature and develop and and become wise and understand things. And I think that's the true aim of of a longer life. You've got to have your health, you've got to have your finances and your relationships, but actually it just gives us long to develop as people. Mary Shelley's 19th century Frankenstein tells the story of a young scientist who longs to create life, using unorthodox methods to put together a creature of monstrous qualities. From a young age, Victor Frankenstein sought to understand the mystery of life, dedicating himself to alchemy and science. 
Not long after, he brings to life a hideous creature made out of human parts, with watery white eyes and yellow skin that barely conceals the muscles and blood vessels underneath. Repulsed by his work, Victor abandons his creation and flees. The story follows the pair as they shadow the other, ultimately showing that, despite his appearance, the creature is naturally kind, only turning evil after humans show him cruelty. Shelley crafts a wonderfully gothic tale denouncing humanity's obsession with physical appearance and longing for longer life. I would like to touch on on the last uh, area is you know the relationships that exist and uh, and that are so important. There is this famous Harvard study that has looked at you know the relationship of people over what seventy years or you know is relationships in the end, Linda, the growl in order to live longer and happier. One I teach my MBA students, I have an elective at London Business School about the future. And one of the things I say to them very early on in, in my elective is you can't buy a friendship. You know, I can't buy a 55-year-old friendship at the age of 65. I can't just say, well, I want that now. Can I buy it? You can't. And and this is really many of the issues we've spoken about today, Derek, are issues that require investment. They require investment right the way through your life. But friendship's really important. It comes back to those Japanese um, people I talked about earlier who who see each other every day. And But, you know, like staying healthy, friendships take time. If you think about how many times over the last six months have you cancelled a meeting with a friend because, you know, something else came up or, you know, you didn't. And we know, by the way, during COVID that networks have really shrunk. My husband this morning was saying to me, I've got to really make an effort this next month to reach out to all the people that I didn't see, you know, during COVID. What happened during COVID is that we spent more time with people we know very well and much less time with all those other, you know, great friends that are so important to us. So it's definitely time post-COVID to make significant investments in our friendships. They are fundamental to a happy life, and they cannot be bought. This is, I think, absolutely key, as I'm sure we'll agree. You know, I, I draw that distinction between an ageing society where there's more old people and what we've been talking about, longevity, which is healthy ageing. But let's forget about healthy ageing for now and just think, all that misery that we talk about, about ageing society, more old people, more illness, pensions, what it really is, is more infants surviving those early years. It's fewer parents in middle age dying and more grandparents to be alive. And that is amazing. I was looking at the other day, my, my father never met his grandparents. That's such a shame. And you know, so if I do manage 90 or 100, I hope to meet my great grandchildren. No pressure on my children. I haven't even got children at the moment. But you know, that's ultimately, it's so interesting. We turn this aging society into a problem. When just think of all the human interrelationships we should really be celebrating. It's a magnificent achievement. Uh, Alice, maybe a last question for you. You know, we, we've seen a lot of, of new services, apps to connect people, you know, across generation, within generations. You know, do you see this trend continuing? Because there are so many tools that are now available that did not exist before. Yeah, I um, completely agree. I mean, you see not only dating apps for the over 50s thriving, such as eHarmony, Silver Singles, 
Newman, Date My Age, but you also have Scrabble Go. I play with my grand aunt on Scrabble online. Backgammon Go, I, I play with my, my mother online as well. And um, you have learning apps where you want to learn new, new skills, new knowledge. Um, you want to develop linguistic skills and you can go on Duolingo or Babbel and, and develop new skills through these apps. And you don't need to be 25 or 35. You can be 50, 60, 70, and it's readily available on your phone. Maybe to finish with, I, I'd love to get your opinion of each of you. There's um, on, on this new long life book, there's a chameleon. You know, that's the cover of this book. You know, I, I'd like to, to better understand how hopeful you are that human beings can adapt this, to this new uh, long life because this is not easy. You know, having this, this additional present, as you was mentioning, Linda, of 10 years is, is not easy. So, so how hopeful are you and what are the risks that people can cope with this long life? government policy has to change. But, you know, Andrew and I are not government ministers. We're, uh, we're academic professors. Mm. And what we realized when you look at other changes in life cycle, for example, the emergence of teenagers, is it came with a new narrative. And what Andrew and I tried to do in the new long life and in the 100-year life was to create a new narrative to talk, for example, about multi-stage lives, you know, to talk about the possibility of a hundred-year life. And these narratives, these words that are used to describe what our lives can be, turn out to be very important. The hundred-year life became the most, uh, the top-selling book in Japan. Uh, it was made into a manga. It became very, very influential. It has done, indeed, in many of the translations it's gone into. So, you know, our role as observers is to show how things are changing and to put words to that and to put ideas to that. But really it's now for governments to step up and to think about policy changes and importantly, corporations to step up uh, and CEOs to step up is as indeed some of them are to really help employees think about how to make the best of it. But Andrew, what's your view on that? So it's a great question, and, and I think it's a fundamental change because, you know, when we got more children surviving into middle age, we knew what childhood was. When we got more people surviving from middle age, we knew what middle age was. The length of life now we're talking about is so great that it's going to challenge pretty fundamental concepts about, uh, you know, how we see age and old age. So it's going to be hard. But you know what? Change is already happening. You know, the average age of having a first child is now late 20s in the UK, not early 20s, similarly for getting married. Uh, over the 10 years before COVID, 100% of the employment growth in G7 came from the age group 50 plus. Uh, the average age of divorce is, fall uh, sorry, divorce is falling, but it's increasing for those aged over 70 or 80. There are already big changes occurring. Of course, we don't yet know. One of the things that we stress in the book is we're going to have to experiment. And Linda and I kind of used logic and examples and provocation to say, well, it could be this or we think it could be that. But we don't know. And the teenage is a great example because for most of human history, we had children and we had adults. I think 1937, New, York, New Yorker uses the word teenager. But it takes about 30, 40 years before we actually sort out what it is. And everyone then says, great, that's what you do in your team. So I do wonder sometimes that we might have the biologists come up with treatments to tackle aging 
quicker than we as a society will adjust to how we do it. But the change is happening and the success of our book, you know, I hope it's a beautifully written, you know, interesting book, but it, I think it just sort of chimed with the mood, something's afoot, something is happening. So it's already occurring. Alice, last word, are you hopeful? I'm very hopeful. I think that humans need to be conscious that we are on this planet for a longer time and we should be doing things that make sense for ourselves in a positive manner and act as responsible people towards life. And to me, that's the most important thing. And I would strongly advocate for that. Thank you. So I just would like to, to conclude now to thank you, the three of you. You know, it's been fascinating hearing you and, uh, and imagining the, the future, our future. So thank you very much for your participation. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank, thank you. you very much. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Linda Grattan, Andrew Scott, Alice de la Maz, and Derek Batter. This series is brought to you by the Big Tech Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrijarras Betayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.